1: There is a long tradition of the study of Sikhism in Western academia. However, historiographical accounts still lack a clear vision of the early formation of the tradition. Rahul Deep Singh Gill addresses this lacuna in Drinking from Love's Cup, Surrender and Sacrifice, in the Vars of Bhai Gurdaspala. Through a detailed... There is a long tradition of the study of Sikhism in Western academia. However historiographical accounts still lack a clear vision of the early formation of the tradition. Rahul Deep Singh Gill addresses this lacuna in Drinking from Love's Cup, Surrender and Sacrifice in the Vars of Bai Gordas Bala. Through a detailed analysis and lucid translation of the literary tradition of Bai Gordas Bala, who died in 1636, the tradition's most important poet, Gill challenges and critiques current modes of Sikh scholarship, by Gurdas's poetry shaped early Sikh theology and practice, providing an emotive lexicon for communal identity. Gill highlights some of the most important of Gurdas's vars in articulating key themes in his writing, including spiritual death, martyrdom, sacrifice, and divine love. These tropes often emerge in the context of relationships with Sikh leadership, such as the martyr Guru Arjan or his son Guru Hargobind. In our conversation, we discussed the state of Sikh studies, the founding tradition around Guru Nanak and the transformations that shaped Gordas's life, the Sikh canon and its broader textual landscape, Islamic influences, the manuscript tradition, practices of feet veneration, scholarly orientalism, translational practices, and interfaith engagement. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here was my very fun conversation with Rahul Deep Singh Gill. Welcome, Rahul Deep. Thanks for joining me on New Books and Religion. How are you doing?
0: I'm great, Christian. I've been looking forward to this for so long. I am a long time listener, <laughs> first time caller. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show, and uh, I really appreciate that you're interviewing me today. I appreciate the service that you do to the field for, yeah, for talking to people about. About their
1: books and pastos, you did a uh, one episode with uh, Dr. yeah, I, I,
0: Dr. Isaac uh, uh, Weiner. Yeah, about his great book. Yeah, he had a great book, man. Super interesting book about religion and sound in American history. People should really check that out.
1: Well, you, as you know, you're always welcome to come back and uh, and co-host the channel if if you want so.
0: But I uh, it was really fun. I think I might do that. I might take you up on that offer. <laughs>
1: Well, today we're talking about your great book, Drinking from Love's Cup. Um, But before we get into this, uh, we want to know a little bit about you and your background. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion, uh, perhaps mentors, moments, texts that were really influential in uh, shaping either how you approach the study of religion or the types of topics you're interested in?
0: Well, I, I uh, started reading Victor Turner when I was in preschool, I believe. Um, no, <laughs> man. I, listen, I do not come from people who, you know, do PhDs in humanities, right? My, my grandfather is a small, was a small farmer in East Punjab. My dad and mom immigrated to the United States, you know, worked multiple jobs to, to get us through. I went to college like every, like every other South Asian kid, supposed to be a um, a physician, <laughs> you
1: know. You're I was quite
0: the failure. <laughs> <laughs> I failed, man. This is Plan B. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, uh, I I knew. I remember telling people in high school. You know how everyone out of high school is asking, "Oh, what are you going to study?" You know. I remember having like this really serious. I don't know. I was like pitching myself to people, right? Like, I want to understand what makes humanity tick was my, like, tagline, you know? Like, I wanted to do pre-med, but I didn't think that I was going to actually major major in science. I was going to, like, do something else. Um, I tried psychology. Um, Psych 101, (laughs) sorry, psychologists out there. Psych 101 might be the worst course to introduce people (laughs) (laughs) to the study of psychology. Um, I did fine in it, but it it just wasn't interesting. Took an anthro class, and this professor had, like, amazing stories about working with shamans in South America, and he told them in the most boring way, (laughs) you know. Uh, It was the most dry class. Uh, And then at the end of my freshman year, I took this course with – a professor Anne Meredith at the University of Rochester. It was a it was a freshman kind of seminar course and it was called Quest for the Historical Jesus. And I, I mean I was kind of religiously illiterate, like in terms of like other faiths, you know, going into college and, and in a lot of ways. And that not only did I you know get an understanding of what you know the basis of Christianity was and stuff like that, but that you could ask questions Related to the quest for the historical Jesus, right? That that assumes that there was a Jesus of faith and a Jesus of history, and, I, and like these kinds of questions. I was like, I thought I was in, in some huge secret, you know what I mean? Like I was like, wow, you can do this. Um, took a couple other classes. I took a class on the Quran with a mentor of mine, uh, Emil Homeran, who you know from. Islamic Studies. Uh, he's got a, another great translation out about uh, um, Sufi poetry. Uh, and, and Emil, man, he taught a hard class. That was the hardest B plus I ever earned. But, you know, I just fell in love with the study of religion and it fell in love with me. I ended up TAing the, m- the most difficult class in the major um, theories of religion. Um, I remember I, when I took the class, I did my Uh, presentation on william james's varieties of religious experience which i will never forget i spent you know probably like 90 to 100 hours in a matter of like two weeks digesting that book and recapitulating it for the class's digestion and at the end of it um bill green great scholar of uh, early rabbinical judaism um Held up and, and and now and then dean of the University of Rochester, the college, and now provost at uh, University of Miami, held up my paper and went to the class. This is how you write, and I just remember like melting, you know, like oh my god, I can't believe it. Um, I was doing mediocre in sciences, Christian, and I was kind of killing it in in the study of religion and. I was, I I went through a really crisis moment of like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I love studying this stuff. I love teaching it. I was a TA. Um, and I remember in that class, we also read a book by, um, uh, Eugene Gallagher and, uh, like Tabor, Tabor and Gallagher's why Waco about, um, the branch Davidians and, and the crisis and, and how, that was you know all went to hell, and I remember thinking, man, somebody wrote this book and intervened in this very important moment in American history and was trying to intervene on the on the side of the you know for the purpose of you know reducing this conflict and it, it, the conflict ended up happening anyways, but there's people out there working on this stuff, and we you know we were just like a decade and a half out of the Indian government's and Indian army's invasion of the Darbar Sahib, known as the Golden Temple complex in Amritsar. And I remember putting these two things together. Like, wow, somebody's speaking up for a minor cult in America in Texas, right? And like, who speaks um, for this twenty uh, this this religion of twenty five million people in Punjab when when their you know most important shrine and, and, and shrines around Punjab are eviscerated by the Indian state. I just remember thinking, there is power in the academy. You know? So not only do I do I do well in studying this stuff, it's important.
1: Well, you've done I, a great uh, job uh, producing this book, too. <laughs>
0: Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I've been studying Gordas since that time. Um, the summer after... Uh, theories of religion, I went to, um, no, the winter after that, I went to Punjab and studied at the feet of one of the preeminent historians of um, Sikh history, J.S. Graywall, and uh, in in Chandigarh, where I was born, where my family's at, and I was trying to understand, you know, how, what Sikh religious identity was. And I remember Graywall telling me, you know, don't look at these 19th century sources if you want to understand Sikh religious identity. Um, and he said in the Queen's English, I remember him sitting, sitting in his living room and he had this cardigan on. And, you know, totally this British educated uh, Punjabi professor. He said, Rahul, have a look at <laughs> Um to understand, you know, seven, you know, 17th century Sikh identity, early Sikh identity. And that was my honors thesis. My my college honors thesis was understanding Sikh identity creation through looking at Gurdas's bars. And I've been having a look at Gurdas for more than a decade and a half now.
1: Well, um, many listeners might not be familiar with Sikhism in general or in particular so uh, before we kind of get into Gordas and uh, the specificities of his life and writings, what do we need to understand about the tradition to think about your project? What can you tell us about the specific historical moment in which Gordas was living? Uh, what were the conditions and transformations that would have shaped his life?
0: So Gurdas is living and writing 100 uh, years after the founding of the community under Nanak, also known as Guru Nanak, known at that time as Baba Nanak, right? Guru Nanak, Baba Nanak, founds this community, and he says he, he, he does so after having received a call from the Lord to be a minstrel. At God's court, and so, Grunanic's compositions are poems. Many of them are VARs, actually, in the VAR genre, like Gurdas writes. Uh, Grunonic form Grunach's, uh poetry compositions form the basis of what is today Sikh scripture. The first, uh, the, the the penultimate manuscript of Sikh scripture was comp- was compiled during Gurdas' time, and many say um, Gurdas served as the scribe, or maybe amanuensis for that that scriptural text, in 1604, under the aegis of the fourth successor of Guru Nanak, right? So Guru Nanak founds a community, dies in 1539, passes it on to a successor, and then that succession continues um, nine times further. So there are ten gurus in Sikh history. Gurdas writes, um, I argue, immediately after the death of the fifth guru. And so the community has enjoyed 100 years of success. That success has also drawn the ire of the Mughal Empire, which is founded almost exactly at the same time um, as the Sikh community. And by the time the fifth guru um that his sort of mini kingdom is thriving, the the, the the Mughal emperor um sees enough of his political and religious authority to feel some sort of challenge and he ends up um having the fifth guru executed, Guru Arjun executed. So my argument and this is the first time anyone sort of argued this about Gurdas, is that because the you know the subtitle is "Surrender and Sacrifice" in the Vars of by Gurdas, blah, that Gurdas is writing about the surrender and sacrifice of Guru Arjan, which happens in 1606, two years after that manuscript is completed, and Gurdas's Vars are are a very direct response to um, that event. Now, a lot of people. Have, no one sort of seen them as a direct response to that and, and there's a bunch of complicated reasons in history why I argue that is the case but when I read Gurdas I see him making very beautiful literary allusions borrowed very much from the Islamicate uh, tradition, Sufi traditions, particularly Shia traditions talking about the cup of martyrdom, the cup of love as a metaphor um, as a stand-in for the notion of surrender and sacrifice for a higher cause.
1: Now, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Gordas? How has he generally been, been understood in Western scholarship? How, how does he understand himself through his writing? And and what would you say, uh, h- how would you argue, argue we should understand this?
0: So Gordas has been called by some the St. Paul of the state tradition. He's this lofty Uh, literary and religious figure who people revered so much that they never ended up taking seriously, if if that can be believed. That is to say, they found his writings to be so important and so powerful uh, in edifying something about Sikhism that they never really tried to um, understand what animated those writings. And so there's these stories that emerged in the, you know, 18th century about who Gurdas is, um, that become, you know, like a hundred years after his life, that become the sources for later history about Gurdas. Those stories kind of portray him as a scribe, as somebody who's very devoted to the guru. Um, But what I argue is that Gurdas sees himself as a bard, as a bard of the guru. Now, this has precedence in Sikh history because Nanak sees himself as a minstrel of the Lord, right? So, um, poetry, especially the var form, heroic poetry, uh, has a place in the spirituality of the Sikh tradition. And I argue that Grudas is very much uh, utilizing that heroic art form of the var, which can be kind of translated as a ballad, to really make a statement about the import of Guru Arjun's death and sacrifice and what it means for the growth of the Sikh community now at that moment in time that would have, Guru Arjun's death you know, murdering the leader right, of a tradition would have been the most um, traumatic event in the history in the short hundred year history of that, of that religious uh, group so what Gurdas is doing is transforming the emotions of that event into a heroic act that he argues in his poetry is sort of seeding the what he calls the banyan tree, right? The the banyan tree that will grow to become the future Sikh tradition, which will provide cool shade to this burning world. Um, So he sees that, you know, this event is a is a momentous occasion and something to be celebrated, no matter how traumatic it appears in
1: its time. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the manuscripts you're looking at? Because um, these early writings, uh, there's a few editions. Um, Tell us about the text you're working with. Give us an idea of what those texts are like. Um, and who would have been the audience for these? So those are multiple questions. <laughs> they are
0: <laughs> answer and, <them> now. <laughs> and the the reason why it's it's difficult. So the the reception history of Gordas is something that I can theorize about. I can hypothesize about at this moment. I would need to do a little bit more work in in getting the the story straight to really. Dig into the, especially that first hundred years of reception of Gurdas, which would have been really important. Manuscripts wise, the tricky thing is while Sikh scriptural manuscripts are, have colophons and are pretty, um, are, are much more easily datable, none of Gurdas's manuscripts before the 19th century have. Um, any kind of datable information in terms of the manuscripts themselves, right? So what I noticed when I was looking at the manuscripts um, and and traveling uh, archives in Punjab was that the the numbering of the manuscripts was was kind of was kind of sticky there were a few manuscripts uh, at least one that i that i um, saw at the Casa college in amritsar that started in a different order than the others i later found another one in Javad-i-Kalant that started in the same with the same um, var and this var was the what is today the fourth var and it's about martyrdom, it's about sacrifice, it's about terrible things happening and then amazing things coming out as a product of that. Uh at at the uh, University of California Santa Barbara, the Center of Six and Punjab Studies there had a copy of a manuscript that I called the Lamba manuscript that was in the possession of a of a you know one family. It had a facsimile of that manuscript that also Started with that var, and I could see was like an earlier version of whatever that later the the, the Javadi manuscript that I um, had found. So, make a long story short, there was there was at least three manuscripts um, out of all the ones that I studied that started in a different place, had a shorter number of vars, but sort of alluded to the notion that these were the complete vars of Gurdas, which means that that scribe. Whoever that scribe was, thought that he had all the vars that he had, and in those manuscripts there was only thirty-four vars. Today we have forty. So what I found was that there was two kind of uh, recensions, or, or, or you know, bit, um, additions, or whatever you want to call it, of what gurdas's corpus was in terms of the vars. He also had another set of texts in Brj Pasha. There are quatrains called gabits. Uh, some of them are Cervellas, for those people who know a little bit about um, the Brudge quatrain system. But I argue that I think those probably came at a later date. The Vars were some of the earliest things that he wrote, or that, at least that are extant.
1: Um, yeah. Now, uh, as you describe uh, his his writings, um, you place them within the context of this uh, more settled, sick, scriptural tradition. Um, and you talk about how sometimes he's understood as writing, uh, commentaries basically that, that his writing is a part of an exegetical tradition. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, you've kind of alluded to this in bits and pieces, but, um, kind of help us fill in the gaps here. What, uh, how should we understand, uh, Gordas's Vars, um, what is the, what are the contours of the broader Sikh textual canon that we should know about, and, and where would you say that his Vars fit within this textual landscape?
0: I would say that they're, they're the first um, non-canonical poetry that the Sikh tradition, that emerges out of the Sikh tradition. So we have prose texts um, that are basically what we call the Janamsakhis that are, you know, retellings of the lives of the Sikh gurus, beginning with Guru Nanak that emerge at some point, you know, late in the 1500s. But Gurudas is that are the, fir- the first extant poetic texts um, outside of the canon of the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the Sikh scripture. Now, if you have an exegetical text, uh, Typically, exegetical texts, if they're, if if they're, if the notion is that they're, you know, explicating and clarifying something that is unclear in scripture, you're, those are going to be prose texts, right? In some sense, that's the role that the jannamsakis are playing that those life stories or those prose life stories that the gurus are playing is that they give an episode of the guru's life and they say, oh, here was the scripture that was, you know, here was the hymn that was revealed at that moment. And this is why. What you have with gurdas are beautiful poems, very complicated poems with their own intricate um, landscape of literary allusions and forms that i think the, 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 whoever's writing this is not trying to explicate something that is already there in scripture by the way six scripture is written in a very rustic and understandable um you know kind of poetry itself gurdas's poems are um much more i would say military in their cadence they're because he's writing writing in a in a genre known uh, 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 that is like a ballad form. They're a lot more uh, energetic. Um, I would say that Grutas's writings fit as the first writings to understand what is happening in Sikh history. Right, the first poems to to understand what is happening in Sikh history, and they are emotive, right? They're not rational and logical and boom, 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 this is an argument. They're very emotive and emotional and uh, trying to get the, you know, a rise out of the audience. So I would imagine that these were performed orally um, and there's a great tradition of minstrels and bards in Punjab who performed love stories, um, stories of Battles and things like that. And I think this fits into those genres much more so than exegetical texts.
1: Now, to get to uh, some of the content here, um, you describe his vars uh, revolving around a few tropes, uh, specifically this idea of suffering uh, in kind of spiritual and material ways. Um, and then uh, this allusion in your uh, title, Drinking from Lover's Cup." So how does Gurdas incorporate these themes of spiritual death, sacrifice, martyrdom, love uh, in his writings? And what, what would you say uh, is the context we should think about these in? So I think the
0: context that we should think of when we're looking at this is the context of, of ishk. Right, of rapturous love uh, with the divine that the Sufi tradition, particularly out of Persia and Afghanistan, is so, is so well known for. Um, so the, the idea of, you know, Al Halaj or Mansur, right, as the person, the, the Sufi that says, you know, um, I am the truth, right? And then he's put to death. Uh, for that, uh, I think what was it, Abbasid Caliphate, maybe, um, and he he becomes a, a point of illusion for later Sufis, to, who say that he has you know drunk from the cup of love and he has reached fana, um, you know he has obliterated his lower self and 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 so Sufi poetry celebrates his death as a kind of act of defiance, but also as an act of deep devotion to God, total love with God as a kind of drunkenness. And so in Sufi spirituality the notion of um, spiritual ascent is very deeply tied with metaphors of uh, intoxication, right? Spiritual intoxication. So Gurdas uses this word, he doesn't use the word ishq which comes from the Persian Arabic setting he uses the uh, indic word bitum and bram which is right a kind of a, a synonym for ish love the kind of love in which one gives up for the beloved and so bitum beala the cup of love is a constant theme in gordas's poetry drinking from love's cup allows us to be fearless in the face of of great suffering. It allows us to bear the unbearable. And so for me, that really is very close to somebody being put under unbearable conditions um, until that person uh, dies. And that is what happens to Guru Arjun. Um, by the orders of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, he is put to death. And so I'm saying that Gurdas is celebrating Arjan's death, the most traumatic event up until that point in Sikh history, through this lens of um, wine and drunkenness and martyrdom that is so rich in Shia and Sufi traditions that had reached Punjab you know, centuries earlier before that.
1: So what, what does he say in his text then? He, uh, he talks about these in kind of uh, relation to kind of per- personal aspiration and uh, kind of religious life. Uh, he talks about this in relation to um, the, the guru leadership. Uh, w- can you give us a little more uh, detail on what he's saying about these, these things? So what he's saying is,
0: look, these are trying times, right, is what he's saying to his audience. Um, There's a, there's a var stanza, the 26th var stanza 27, in which he says, the fish never leave the ocean, regardless the calamity, the moth knows no love other than the flame, right? So these are metaphors of total devotion, total surrender, surrender up until the point of death for the beloved, right? The moth to the flame. Um, I would imagine that. Psalm 6 are probably rethinking their loyalties in an, uh, in, in an event, after an event so traumatic as the, the death of their Guru at the hands of the state, right? So, one thing that he's saying is, hey, don't leave this community. Another thing he's saying is, don't leave this community for a rival group. So, Guru Arjun's brother, Brithichan, uh, and then Brithichan's son, Guru Arjun's nephew, Mehrban they have split off and, and have said that they are now after guru Arjun, the rightful heirs to guru nanak's you know spiritual legacy gurdas is on the side of guru Arjun's son guru hargobind who is more is even more political than his father militarizes um the community in some sense in response to his father's death and gurdas is saying that this Increased politicization, this um, more defiant stance, is actually the sick way, right? And the way that he does this is through deep metaphor. So, in that same VAR, VAR 26, stanza 12 says, Wondrous is the sugar cane which grows with its head down. Again, active devotion, active surrender. First, its skin is stripped, then, it is cut into pieces and crushed crushed in the juicer, it is mangled, its juice goes into a cauldron, boiled, enduring every agony, It is hailed the world over as jaggery, molasses, sugar, candy, the gourmooks, the six, joy, fruit is the sweetest of all, drinking from love's cup, die and find life again, like the sweet sugar cane, you see what I'm saying, so he is giving metaphor of, after metaphor of the sweetness of a of, of a death that comes in the face of great difficulty in which one does not leave one's devotion to the guru or to the divine
1: this is great and you uh i mean we should we should mention here that uh, a, a large portion of the book is these these translations of the vars themselves so do, maybe maybe this would be a good point to talk a little bit about that translation process. Uh, why did you think it was important for, for these primary sources to be available in English and uh, and talk a little bit about your process in uh, producing them?
0: Well, for me it's it's my own act of defiance against a kind of Orientalism that has enveloped the study of many religions, right, but that still is deeply uh, ingrained in the study of Sikhism. The <laughs> I don't know if you can believe this, but the The person who right is right, the father of the field of Sikhism, W. H. McLeod, Hugh McLeod, a New Zealander, uh, former Christian missionary, uh, died uh, within the last decade or so. Started writing his first book in 1969. His autobiography is called "Discovering the Sikhs." Mm. You know, and it, it, on, on it is an image of him um, in a beret. Meeting a Nihong Sikh, like the most, right? Uh, the the 0.01% of the population who still walk around like it, you know, it's 1690, partying like it's 1699, right? Like, like they're still living in this military uh, lifestyle. They're, I mean, they're very, they, they look a certain part. And I think that out of his legacy, um, Sikh tradition is still deeply ingrained with a kind of orientalism now most people's answer to orientalism is to move away from texts right so we want to understand how people actually live their lives instead of these idealized versions that come out of the textual traditions i argue that the textual tradition of the Sikh tradition was never properly studied right and we have so much work to do to even date the basic texts um and so for me Trying to understand what these people were saying in their time um, is is actually a way to counter that particular strand of Orientalism that is in the Sikh tradition. Now, with respect to Gurdas, because his poems are so pithy, right, because they're so loaded with metaphors, per- translating him was a particular challenge. In the midst of the always difficult, if not impossible challenge of translating from one language to another. And so I chose a style that tried to mirror his pithiness, um, that tried to write in plain English, in plain language that was understandable, that didn't need, you know, a dictionary to to read. And I really tried my best to mimic rhythm whenever possible, because these vars, as ballads, as very much performed texts, um, are ultra-rhythmic. Right, the onomatopoeia inside of things, inside of lines, the internal rhyming, um, the way stanzas are constructed. Often the last line in a stanza is the shortest line and has the pithy truth of that stanza, right? Um, for example let me find one. Um, you know, talking about the the you know, six hovering like bees at the guru's feet, one stanza in the seventh bar ends hovering like bees merged with joy, boom, end of stanza right, so it was very important for me to get that sense of that shortened line even if it um, you know required me to not be as as verbose and trying to explain every little thing that was in the originals, Um, and I try to do my best of using footnotes and stuff to explicate allusions whenever they um, were important to, to explain to the audience.
1: Yeah. Was Boom the last part of what he wrote?
0: No. Is no. that your addition? That, that's how I read it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you should. It's uh, It comes across in that way. You you have effectively uh, constructed the, the, the language to come across in uh, a moving way. So. Oh, thanks,
0: man. Well, you don't know Punjabi, so you don't really know if I did a good job.
1: But I know English. I know English. <gasps> Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's accurate, but it, the 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 way it reads in English is is very good. Um, one particular chapter that that uh, I found interesting, not knowing a lot about the tradition, um, that others might al- also uh, enjoy hearing about is one focused on feet. Uh, yeah. So, could you talk a little bit about how Gordas understood and legitimized practices revolving around feet?
0: So this is Var twenty three, right? And this is my this is a perfect way to. Uh, to talk about how the way that we've interpreted Sikh texts within the tradition, as well as in scholarship, as well as in that Orientalist scholarship, but but even you know Sikhs themselves, we're kind of blind to some of the realities that was that were alive at the time of when they were written. Um, I was working with a hunch that came from my mentor, Grinder uh, who thought that there was an initiation ceremony in the 17th century in which the six didn't dip the toe of the guru and drink the water like a lot of other traditions do, right? For initiation, they washed the feet of new initiates and then drank that water. Now, okay. Fine, 2017, not hygienic, right? Like, you know, we got we got to get over our whatever. You know, a lot of times I tell people that, and they're like, "Ew, gross." Okay, fine, gross. But what that tells me is that a couple things for this tradition, washing the feet of others was was an act of hospitality, right? It was an act of again, trying to obliterate the caste system or or its influence, which was a deeply important part of the founding of Sikh tradition with the institution of Lunger, right? People sitting on the floor eating together, regardless of gender, uh, social, um, economic distinction. And so through this process of, of falling at each other's feet, they would literally also touch each other's feet in greeting. Six, word, according to Gurdas, he writes, we fall at feet and bring the world to our feet. Right? That it's the sick worship of each other's um, you know, the, the divine in each other that is a practice of deep humility, but also a practice of caste defiance, that are going to cause the Sikh community in the future to be um, very successful, right? We fall at feet and bring the world to our feet. And he goes through all of these metaphors, like the goddess Lakshmi, the river Ganga, and says, you know, people say that these things are pure, but even these, even the river uh, Ganga, right, comes out of Shiva's... What is it? Um, the river Ganga, elixir of the celestial feet, renounced the heavens for the earth. So this is um, uh, uh, an allusion to the Ganga, and one myth that is the, the river is said to flow out of Vishnu's left toe. So he like is bringing all these allusions in and says, see, feet in all of history have actually been the most important thing, and we are six. We worship feet, and. We worship the feet of others, and we worship the feet of the, of the new initiates, and we think of them as our as our guru. Like, that is like a, um, a mind-blowing description of what might have been lived religion in the 17th century, right? So, for me, the texts are not only beautiful, and um, they're alluding to something, but they're also describing, I think, what might have been a practice that has been lost over the centuries, that probably was a controversial practice because it was kind of gross, right? Um, or for whatever reasons. But this is Granoff saying, "Man, this is what we do. This is what six do."
1: Now, there uh, there's so many directions we could go, and uh, again, you've done a great job translating this. Um, is, there, is there any kind of uh, specific uh, vars that you would like to highlight before uh, before I let you go? You're to look. Don't let me go.
0: you know i i just love var um 26 it's it's i call it bearing burdens with love's cup and it's a var that talks about um the the royal nature of guru hargobin right and how formidable he is and how he's um facing burdens after the death of his father including right Striking this defiant tone against the Mughal emperor, and then having to battle his own uncle and then cousin for um, for the the role of, of 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 Guru, right in the in the 17th century. So, you know, in in this context, um, I think really trying to understand. Um, VAR 26 is essential, so let me let me read you one stanza, the ninth stanza of VAR 29, and it's going to end with that short line at the end, and, I'll, and just remember, keep in mind that this is a moment of deep fear, probably for the Sikh tradition, of when they feel burdened by the trauma of the death of their guru, the state is persecuting them, there's a rival sect that Is trying to pull people um, away. And Gurdas writes, Those who feel love do not fear. The loveless will fear what comes after here. Fire burns, water cools. One swells up, the other stays low. Full pots drown, but light ones float. The weighted vat makes no music. The mango tree heavy with fruit bends low. The high bear only pain the bird of the heart soars from tree to tree eating wherever it finds fruit on the scales of justice we who will sink uh, i'm sorry on the scales of justice we find who will sink and who will rise the victorious will lose the losers shall win feet will stand on heads we fall at feet we win the world Stanza nine of R twenty six of Gurdas's work.
1: Well, well, Deep, it's been a pleasure. Uh, before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're you're working on now, or hope to have come well, out in the future?
0: Well, I'm not trying to write ninety nine dollar books anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm trying to write. I will. I want to translate more of the Sikh traditions poetry. Um, that's going to be a, a slow process and a long process, especially to find a publisher that will um, publish it in, a, in a prestigious form that is also, you know, something that you can pick up at, at Barnes and Noble um, and is available to a, a mass audience. But other things that I'm working on right now are, are things that emerge kind of out of teaching at a small private college in Southern California, like. You know, trying to work on interfaith cooperation in these crazy times and this era of, you know, inflamed uh, bigotries that, that we live in. So I you know, I speak on these issues. I consult. I'm campus interfaith strategist at California Lutheran University where I work. So that uh, now that I'm coming back from sabbatical for after a year is going to be taking a lot of my time uh, during sabbatical. I did some writing. Actually, a, an article just came out in a journal of college and character (laughs) so not related to the Sikh tradition, not related to 17th century Sikh poetry related to very much the 21st century issues of um, how we teach religion and and how we build um, a resilient uh, student body on our campuses in these times of increased bigotry and, and political contention so check that out. It's called um, From Safe From Safe Spaces to Resilient Places, and Journal of College and Character just came out. So I'm working on a couple of different things, Christian. It's great. It's important work, and uh, I wish you the best of luck, my friend. Thanks, Christian. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to all listeners who were with me talking about this book, and uh, I hope to do
1: this again. Yeah, we should. That was my conversation with Rahul Deep Singh Gill about his great new book, Drinking from Love's Cup: Surrender and Sacrifice in the Vars of Baigoda Spala, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. We'll see you next time.